Psalm 46, which are the words we just sung, uh, says that the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And it invites us, come behold the works of God, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And so as we look at the chaos and death and destruction that unfolds in our world. We first see this glimpse of who our God is, and then we're given this instruction in verse 10. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's good news, amen. Amen. So fathers, we come to your word this morning. We come declaring and claiming the promise of your sovereignty. God, the promise that you are in control, the promise that nothing is happening outside of the boundaries of your plan. That you being sovereign over all things can take even the worst evil that's being committed and turn it for the good of your people and the glory of your name. So Lord, it's our prayer and our desire this morning that we would be still. We would know that you were God. God, as nations rage, as kings plot, we know that in the backdrop of eternity, there is a God who has not surrendered one inch of his throne. And we worship you today. So Lord, help us today once again to be rooted in the confidence that you are in control. Help us to leave this place today with the boldness of resurrection power that you have given us through the life and death of your son, Jesus. Father, speak to us this morning a word that will edify your church and glorify your name. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be again together today. We're going to look at the passage that comes before uh, where Dave had us together last Sunday morning. Um, if you're our guest, my name's Taylor. I serve your cross as lead pastor. And I want to say thank you to, uh, to Dave and to Alex for sharing the word with our church family the last couple of weeks. And if you're new with us, the last several weeks, our church family's been in a message series called Ecclesia, where we have been looking at what the church is and uh, what the church is called to do, not in uh, light, not according to my opinions, not according to our preferences, not according to our desires and our conviction, but what is the church actually from a biblical perspective, from God's perspective, and what has he called his people to do and to be? So as we get to the halfway point uh, of this message series, we're going to kind of do a one-off uh, before we come back and begin to finish things up till Easter, Lord willing, beginning uh, next week. Just over the last couple of weeks, as global events have unfolded, particularly in regards to uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and how they're being impacted in Ukraine, uh, we've had so many leaders in our church the last couple of weeks just pray towards this end and speak towards this end. But, but we really just wanted to be sensitive to what's happening in our world today and to consider these events from a biblical perspective. What is the role of the church as the nations rage? As, as the threat of war and even the reality of war just continues to loom and as uncertainty just sits on the edge of the horizon right now, what is the role of the church when the nations are raging? 
Now, Lord willing, you know, this afternoon, uh, our church family, we have a very special occasion to celebrate. We will be celebrating the groundbreaking of our permanent facility out in Shell Point. And, you know, church family, I've, I've got to be just totally transparent with you this morning. It's uh, something I've been really conflicted about for the last couple of weeks. When I look at what's happening, you know, across the world as we see the suffering of brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, as the events continue to unfold in, in Ukraine, uh, I almost feel guilty for what we're doing today. Yeah, I feel very, very conflicted because, you know, we, we get to go out there together and celebrate with absolutely no threat around us whatsoever, except maybe the bugs, no threat around us whatsoever as we gather together to break ground on a permanent facility, just an epic adventure that we've gotten to go on as a church the last few years. Total freedom, total prosperity, no threat to us whatsoever while many brothers and sisters in Christ gather today globally at the threat of the cost of their own lives. It's very, very conflicting. I mean, just, if I'm being honest, it all just seems very trivial to me right now. And, and I want that to take away from the moment that we're going to celebrate together this afternoon. But I think it's so important that we consider what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, not just from an American Western perspective, but from a global perspective. You know, there seems to be kind of this air about uh, events as they unfold overseas. This has become more prevalent over the last four or five years that we see something unfolding in another country, you know, country gets invaded or we see an attack on another nation. And, and even as the body of Christ in the West, we just kind of go, well, what's that have to do with us? That's not happening in America. Like that doesn't impact me. Like what's this really have to do with me? Why should I care about these things? We, we seem to have forgotten how to view these things through a biblical lens. Over the last few months, we've studied what it means to be a part of the church, not just to be a part of the local church, but the big C church, the global body of Christ. And we seem to forget very quickly that these, these things do impact us. You know, next week we'll be studying biblical church membership together. And we'll see from Paul's words to the church in Corinth that when one member of the body suffers, all of us suffer. It impacts all of us at a global level. Last Sunday morning, I was getting ready uh, with my family to come uh, join in with you for worship that morning. And uh, I read this interview. There was a, a pastor who decided to remain anonymous who is in a neighboring country to Ukraine who has a friend who's pastoring inside of Ukraine. And he had been in conversation with him throughout the morning. And uh, I read this last Sunday morning as I'm eating a bowl of cereal and getting ready to come into church uh, and to worship with my family. This is a snippet of the interview. He said, I talked to the pastor in Kiev today. After last night's bombing, he didn't get much sleep, but he was still preparing his sermon for tomorrow. If the church is still standing, he plans to make his way there and hold services. You know, I'm, sit, I'm sitting there reading that as I'm eating my breakfast. I'm watching my boys play. I'm about to come join in with you with worship that morning. And it's moments like that where I just, I just have to ask myself, Lord, do we understand in any capacity what it means to truly follow you? Have we in, in the West truly counted the cost of following Jesus? Church, I think it's important for us to remember that it is adversity, not prosperity, that reveals the true measure of our faith. It is so easy to follow Jesus when there's no threat it is so easy to follow Jesus when it's not just culturally acceptable, but for most of our nation's history, culturally popular. Like you're, you're almost looked at weirdly if you don't follow Christ. And, and that's, that's only become a little bit less true in the last couple of decades. Do we truly understand what it means? Have we truly counted the cost of following Jesus? And if waves of adversity happen to touch us in our nation, are we prepared to stand on this day? 
What is the role of the church as the nation's rage? This is a question that was being considered by another pastor who wrote an article that made its rounds through the Gospel Coalition this past week. A Ukrainian pastor, here were his words. He said, how should the church respond when there is a growing threat of war? When there is constant fear in society? I'm convinced that if the church is not relevant at a time of crisis, then it is not relevant in a time of peace. Let me read that one more time for us this morning. I'm convinced that if the church is not relevant at a time of crisis, then it is not relevant in a time of peace. He said, we have decided to stay both as a family and a church. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. And while the church might not fight like the nation, we still believe we have a role to play in the struggle. We will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, and mend the broken. And as we do, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. Adversity, not prosperity. This is the true measure of our faith. So I've titled this message this morning, The Rage of the Nations and the Role of the Church. What is our role? What is our responsibility as a body of believers, as the nations rage and as the threat of war looms? It was A.W. Tozer who said several decades ago that a scared world needs a fearless church. And I believe even in our nation where we don't face any true threats of suffering or persecution for the sake of the gospel, that this is more true now than ever. And so today what we're going to do as we open up Acts chapter 4 is we're going to look at the actions of the early church as they experienced a wave of suffering. We're going to look at how they had total confidence in the sovereignty of God, uh, of a God who is completely in control of all circumstances, and how that trust in his sovereignty emboldened them to declare the gospel in the face of continued threats. And as we do this along the way, we're going to see some more testimony of Ukrainian brothers and sisters who are ministering uh, boldly to advance the gospel, um, even in the midst of war. And then we're going to close with a focused time of prayer for them. So from Acts chapter 4, let's read together verses 23 through 28. It says here, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. What had been said to them early in chapter 4 was that they were not to preach in the name of Jesus. And so he goes on, verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Everybody say, Sovereign Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage, the Gentiles rage, and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we see first this morning two truths that we're going to draw from this passage, look at a few applications, then we're going to close with focused prayer. We're going to move quickly here. We see first this morning that the rage of the nations cannot hinder the eternal plans of the sovereign God. The rage of the nations cannot hinder the eternal plans of the sovereign God. This is the context very briefly here in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have been imprisoned for speaking and healing in, in the name of Jesus Christ. And they're ordered to stop speaking and healing in his name. 
They're told you can no longer do this. And uh, they don't go back though, protesting about how their rights were violated and how their imprisonment was unjust and how this was unfair. And they didn't go on a social media hashtag campaign and sell hats and t-shirts, allow us to speak freely. They just went to the Lord in prayer and said, give us boldness to proclaim the gospel. Their primary concern was not safety. Their primary concern was boldness. They're told, don't preach in the name of Jesus, but they go on and they continue preaching in the name of Jesus. We'll see in the later verses. And the foundation for their confidence was the sovereign predestining work of God. We see this in verse 24. We see that they believe God was sovereign over creation. Sovereign Lord who created the heaven and who created the earth and everything that's in it. Verse 24 through 25, they saw that God was sovereign over all circumstances, no matter how evil those circumstances might seem. And what they're doing in verses 25 through 26, I'm not going to read this whole thing for us this morning, but they are quoting Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 1 and 2. That this is a quotation of an Old Testament psalm. You could turn over there for just a moment here, Psalm chapter 2. And these are the words that they're praying in this moment. Not gonna read the whole Psalm, but just the first few verses here. These are are the words of David centuries before. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So David asked this question centuries before. Why do the nations do all this raging? Why do kings and why do rulers, why do they plot and why do they scheme and and why do they devise evil plans? Why do they think that they are somehow going to be able to undo the laws and the rules and the statutes of God? And so we asked the question this morning, where is God when the nations rage? What is God doing as the nations are raging? We get the answer in verses four through six. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. As rulers and tyrants and dictators and presidents, as they move to scheme and to plot and to undo the work of God, God is sitting on his throne and he laughs at their efforts. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now by praying this Psalm, what the early church was doing was affirming it as a messianic Psalm. They say that right here in this city, we saw the Gentiles, Jews, they were plotting and they were scheming together for the death of Jesus Christ. They were raging against him. They were plotting and they were planning. And, and, and Herod and Pontius Pilate, they all came together and they thought they were stamping out Jesus. They thought that they were bringing this to an end. But what was God doing on his throne while the nations were raging and plotting to have Jesus put to death? He was laughing. Because here's what was going on. You know, sometimes I read my Bible and think, man, Satan's just an idiot. I mean, just like, like he, he knew that this was coming, that this has been pronounced for centuries and, and thinking that by putting Jesus to death on the cross, he's somehow ending his reign and his rule when in fact all he was doing was expediting his own destruction. And, and what we see from this Psalm, what we see from the prayers of Acts chapter four is no matter how out of control and chaos who uh, may, may seem, there remains in eternity a God who has not moved one inch off of his throne. No matter how evil it seems, no matter how dark it seems, no matter how wrong it seems, there's nothing that is happening in this world outside of the sovereign control 
of the creator. And so they pray these words that they're looking to the, the, the sovereignty of God. And this is the foundation of their boldness. You know, the world never looked more out of control than when Jesus died on the cross. It's the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of bad things that have happened. No, nothing has been worse than the death of Jesus on the cross. Nothing ever looked more out of control. But the rage of the Jewish people, the rage of the, rage of the Gentiles who conspired together with them against Jesus, the actions of Herod, the actions of Pilate, all of this was doing, verse 28, whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. And this is the, this is the, the confidence of these earliest believers, it was in the sovereign predestining work of God. And, you know, here in the West, we tend to be very resistant to these two doctrines. We struggle with uh, the doctrine of sovereignty because we're Americans. We want our freedom. Ain't nobody going to tell us what to do, right? Like we're just, we really hesitate with language like lordship and surrender because that, that really doesn't jibe well with our culture. In particular, we, we love to be in control. So we, we push back against things like predestination. Like it's always baffling to me. Someone comes to me and says, hey, do you believe in predestination? And I'm like, well, I've read my Bible and it's there, so yes. You know, the, the question is not, do we believe these things? The question is, what do we believe about these things? And one of the reasons why we resist these doctrines is because we hear predestination and what we think is fatalism. We think that we're, oh, we're, so you're just telling me we're all just robots and this is a simulation and, and we don't control our actions. That, that's not what scripture's getting at with sovereignty and predestination. That God is sovereign means that absolutely is nothing, nothing is happening outside of his control. We see all through scripture that the sovereignty of God does not negate the responsibility of man. Like it wasn't right and it wasn't holy for Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles to all conspire together to put Jesus to death. And yet even in their conspiring, all it did was accomplish God's will. That's what we mean that God is sovereign is that no matter what happens, no matter how evil it seems to be, it's always going to lead to the unfolding of God's good and perfect will. And you know, again, sometimes we hear these things or say like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm just not so sure how comfortable I am with that. That, that God is, is kind of overseeing all these events as they happen. I just ask you this morning to consider what's the alternative? That he's not in control? Like that he doesn't know what's going on? That this is happening outside of the boundaries of his hand and his plan and his will? Like is that really the alternative that we want to live with? Do we trust and do we believe that no matter how dark our world gets, God remains firmly seated on his throne? Do we trust that he has not relinquished control, that he is able to oversee everything as it unfolds? But we look at the actions of Joseph's brothers from the book of Genesis. They'd sold him into slavery. They meant to cause him harm. And then we look at the words of Joseph, Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, and what does he say? As for you, what the enemy meant for evil, God meant it for good. That's the promise of Paul in Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things, everybody say all things, all things, Paul says, they work together for what, church? For the good. They work together for the good of those who love him. And this is only possible because of a God who is sovereign and in control. For a God who, in whose plan that we can be confident is going to unfold exactly in the way that he desires for it to unfold. This was the confidence of the early church. Their confidence was not in their ability to just be strong and to be bold and to be brave. Listen, they followed Jesus. They expected the persecution. They knew what was coming their way. Jesus never promised them it was going to be easy. 
Jesus never promised them that, that everybody was gonna like him and they weren't gonna face any pushback for being his followers. He was ne- never, never promised any of these things. They expected persecution. They expected discomfort. They expected suffering, but they knew because of their confidence in the sovereignty of God, his predestining plan and work, that even if they lost their lives, it was going to lead to their ultimate good and his ultimate glory. And this has to remain our confidence. This is the only way to make hopeful sense of the broken things in this world as they continue to unfold. We continue to see this faith on display across the world today. This is a joint statement uh, that was released over uh, the last week by um, uh, uh, 10 uh, seminaries from post-Soviet states. And just in light uh, of the invasion into Ukraine, this was the joint statement that was made by these seminaries. It's so powerful. It says, we confess the real and unlimited power of God over all countries and continents, as well as over all kings and rulers. Therefore, nothing in all creation can interfere with the fulfillment of the good and perfect will of God. We together with the first Christians affirm Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. That's a group of people that believe in the sovereignty of God. That's a group of people who, come what what may, know that his perfect plan is going to unfold. You ask, what, what sustains Christians in persecution? What sustains Christians globally in suffering? It's this. It's an unshakable confidence in the sovereign, predestining work of God. And church, I've read these, so many of these testimonies over the last couple of weeks, and it was hard, like, like whittling it down to just a handful for this morning read so many of these testimonies over the last couple of weeks, and I've just prayed after reading each one of these, Lord, that you would grant us such boldness today. God, that you would give us this courage. You would give us this strength so that if the wave of suffering and persecution comes, we'll be ready. Passage closes out, verses 29 through 31. They pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So we see uh, first from this passage, the rage of the nations cannot hinder the eternal plans of the sovereign God. And second, because of this, The role of the church is to continually speak the word of God in the power of his spirit. Because God is sovereign, because God is in control, because his plan is going to uh, unmistakably and perfectly unfold in our reality, we can continue to boldly do what it is he's called us to do no matter what happens to us. But we're not going to do this. We're not going to have that boldness without confidence in the sovereignty of God. And so again, they hear all these words from the religious leaders, stop preaching in the name of Jesus, but they don't go back to the rest of the body and report, well, the government said we have to stop, so I guess we better stop. Matter of fact, they do the exact opposite. What do they do? They go, they get on their knees, and they double down on this. And they pray, Lord, grant us boldness. Safety was not their concern. Comfort was not their concern. Prosperity was not their concern. Their primary concern was that the word of God would continue to go forth boldly. Their prayer was not to be released from the opposition. Their prayer was to persevere in the face of the opposition. And church, it's important that we see this. They never stopped their preaching of the gospel. 
They never stopped proclaiming the name of Jesus, even in the face of serious threats. And the Lord granted this request. And we see that as a result of this, the message of the gospel continued forward in signs and wonders. God moved in power among them as a people, rooted in their confidence in the sovereignty of God, continued driving forward the word with boldness. Again, all across the globe today, this testimony remains true. This is another testimony. This is an anonymous Ukrainian church planter uh, from the last couple of weeks. He said, we serve a king who stared death in the face and defeated it, exploding it from the inside. There's only one true king, and I love this, and the little tyrants of this world will ultimately only play into his great victory. That's belief in the sovereignty of God. That's belief in the predestining hand and plan of God. His promises are sure and his victory is inevitable. You asked the question this morning, what does it look like to actually live my life believing that Jesus rose from the grave? It looks like that. What does it look like for me to trust that God is sovereign? It looks like all of these testimonies that we've seen together this morning. So I want to give us just a few very brief applications here before we move into a time of prayer uh, to close out our time. Well, what's our response then with all this? What is our role as a local church in this moment, removed immediately from that physical suffering, but what is our role as a global body of believers uh, with the threats of war and the reality of war even on the horizon uh, as we gather today? Here's our response. First, we trust that God is sovereign and his plans will not fail. We trust that God is sovereign and his plans will not fail. As Russian forces crept closer and closer to the edge of the Ukrainian border, as the first bombs started to fall, as the first troops started to invade, God was not phased. God was not caught off guard. God was not surprised by what was unfolding. God was no less in control when the bombing started two weeks ago than than the years that we've gone without a single bomb being dropped. God remains sovereign and in control. This is the single truth that's driving forward believers in Ukraine right now. This is what is propelling their faith and driving their faith. And listen, I get it. Like it's, it's kind of cheap for us to sit in the West and just, just kind of ring out this platitude, God is in control, but read their testimonies. That's what's keeping them in this moment. What else could keep them in this moment? This is the one truth that they have anchored the hopes of their souls to, and it's carrying them through the worst suffering. At the cross, this was precisely the moment when the world looked most out of control, Precisely the moment when the world looked most out of control, God demonstrated his total authority over the circumstances. Church, the worst thing that could ever happen has already happened. It happened when Jesus died on the cross. But God responded to the worst thing that's ever happened with the best thing that's ever happened. And that was Christ's resurrection over the grave. He makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. As the enemy advances in plots and schemes, as he deceives men and mankind into doing his bidding, he thinks he's bringing an end to the kingdom, but all he is doing is expediting his own destruction. God remains sovereign and God remains in control. Second, we can know that man is sinful and his schemes are in vain. Know that man is sinful and his schemes are in vain. Again, we ask the question, where was God as a sovereign nation attacked another sovereign nation? Where is God in the innocent loss of life? Where is God in the chaos and the carnage and the destruction? What is he doing? He's remaining firmly seated on his throne. What is his posture towards dictators? What is his posture towards tyrants? What is his posture towards those who plot and scheme in vain? 
he who sits in the heavens laughs. It's so cute that you guys think you're doing something. It's so cute that you think you're building and preserving your name and your heritage and your legacy. All they do is expedite their own destruction. Their schemes will fail. Listen, apart from hope in a sovereign God, it is completely hopeless when you look at the brokenness of this world. We look at evil things that unfold. We look at the innocent loss of life. And, and we, we just see all this and be like, man, it just rightly enrages us as we think, man, how do they get away with this? Why does it seem like evil people can always prevail and get away with things? Friends, they don't. That they may escape the judgment of man on earth. They will not escape the judgment of God in the eternity to come. Every wrong that has ever been committed across all of history is going to be completely righted at the throne of God's judgment. The day is coming. Every knee, every knee is going to bow. Every single tongue is going to confess, willing or unwilling, that Jesus Christ alone is the sovereign Lord of all creation and the universe. Willing or unwilling. The question is not, are you going to recognize Jesus as Lord? The question is, are you going to do it in time? Because you will stand before him. Every dictator, every tyrant, every injustice, every wrong that's ever been committed, it will be righted at the throne of God. This is our hope in life and death. This is our confidence, is that no one ever gets away with evil. One day, on this side of eternity or the next, Every sin will be paid for. All injustice is ultimately going to fail. The sin and schemes of man will fail. This is such good news for us today. Is that when we arrive on the shores of eternity, we will see that every wave of suffering and brokenness was only serving to throw us up on the rock of Jesus Christ. It was all bringing us closer to him. This is your confidence today that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter how wrong and unjust it is, all of it one day is leading you to Jesus, to your ultimate healing, to your ultimate redemption, to your ultimate hope in life and death. We can trust and we can know that the sinful schemes of man are in vain. Third, we speak the word with boldness regardless of the circumstances. I want everybody to say regardless. There's not like a verse in the New Testament that, that gives us a break from the Great Commission just because of stuff that's going on in the world. And I want to stress this point this morning because I, I fear that here in the West, this is something that we have really forgotten over the last five, six years in particular. And I, I'm going to preach here for just a second because uh, there's some things I, I've been, I'm going to be honest, I've been storing this up for about two years and it feels like, man, this is probably the time to start unloading. So uh, bear with me here for, for just a moment. But, but listen, what we've seen through this passage, we've seen ever seen, again, it's, it's adversity, not prosperity that reveals the true measure of our faith. And you and I, as we gather here together this morning, we gather under no real threat whatsoever, none. Like none whatsoever. And we've seen, especially over the last couple of years, it's like the moment we as Westerners have gotten like a little bit of pushback and, and discomfort to our daily lives, like, man, we're ready just to bail out on Jesus. Like this, is, this has happened. It's, it's broken my heart to see this unfold over the last couple of years. What we've seen as there was a little bit, tiny bit of adversity that made it difficult to, to be the church in the way that we want to be the church. There were many who were looking for any excuse under the sun to no longer follow Jesus. In the last two years, they took the off ramp. They got the excuse they needed. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, but if you're saying it's safe for you to go to Disney, but unsafe to gather with the church, you have proven your priorities. 
Like if you're, you'll do everything else under the sun except gather with the body of Christ, the moment you face a little bit of discomfort, it's time to ask the question whether or not your faith is legitimate and whether or not it's real. Westerners, Christians, we need to be reminded the masks, not persecution. Not, listen to me, not persecution. Like, I don't care what your conspiracy theory blog says, not persecution. No one threatened your life for following Jesus. No one. It was a little bit of of discomfort. And, And most of us, the last two years have shown us, like, we're just not ready for adversity. We are not ready for pushback on our faith because the moment the pushback comes, instead of boldly declaring the gospel like the early church, instead of boldly declaring the gospel like our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, we go talking conspiracy theories, talking culture wars, chasing every little rabbit down every unimaginable hole. But we've forgotten who we are. Our calling as followers of Jesus is to declare the gospel always. Like, I'll give it to you this morning. Maybe every one of your little conspiracy theories is true. Maybe they are. Maybe every one of your little culture wars that you keep fighting, maybe they're kind of important. But let me just ask you, even if it's true and even if it's important, what New Testament have you read that's given you permission to abandon the gospel to chase after those things? Like, like what have you been reading? What have you been reading? What have you been doing? And and it's time for us just to take a step back and ask, man, are we ready for adversity? Am I really ready to see my faith tested? Because here's the reality today. There are brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine. They will gather with the threat of bombs raining over their heads. Some of us won't even gather just because it's going to rain. Are you really ready to be tested? Are we really ready to be tested? Our calling always, everybody say always, is the Great Commission. Let the nations rage. Let the people scheme and plot and conspire in vain. You know what's happening in the heavens? Our God is laughing at them. And you and I are calling in the meantime, it's to continue driving forward the work that Jesus has given us to do. You are never given permission to abandon the Great Commission, no matter what's happening in this world. And we have a, a wonderfully faithful display of this happening globally today. So, so what do we do for these brothers and sisters as they gather under the threat of their own lives? Fourth, we pray for God to move in power to the glory of his name. We pray for God to move in power to the glory of his name. This is the role of the church as the nations rage. It's not to join in the rage of the nations. It's to declare our hope and confidence in our sovereign God. It's to, by his grace and the power of his Holy Spirit within us, to continue driving forward the message of the Gospels. Let the nations rage. Let them conspire. Let them plot. Let them plan. Let them scheme. You and I have been given a mission, and it's not that. It's proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. So in just a moment, we're going to uh, shift and transition into a time of prayer. I want to put this on the screen for you today. Um, this is a, a pastor um, who's within the network of churches we belong to, the Acts 29 network. This is Pastor Alexander Leakovoy. He goes by Sasha. That's probably a little easier for you to remember this morning. And, and Pastor Sasha and his family, they have been pastoring and leading in Ukraine uh, for about the same amount of time that our church has been here. A relatively young church plant and, and family. Now, this uh, image has really just stuck with me for the last couple of weeks because I, I see this family. I don't just see his family. I see my family. I see a brother who five, six years ago desperately just wanted to see the gospel saturate his city. 
and, and who is just in, in tremendous uh, danger and has been. And, and so as we understand it right now, he has fled with his family. Once the bombing started, he wanted to get his family to safety. But, uh, but from what we've been able to gather in the article that was released on them, they hope to get back. He hopes to get back to begin ministering to needs there soon. So I want to put their faces before you because this is family for us that this is a body of churches that we are connected to and that we're committed to and uh, to be praying for them and that uh, the opportunities for the gospel would continue to, to come their way because uh, that's their desire and that's what they want. And so, so just stay tuned. Again, it's still a little bit fluid right now how we might be able to support this specific church. I'm gonna share something else with you at the end today. But I wanted there to be a face to this. This is a, a body of believers that we have linked arms with globally to advance the name of Jesus. We want to be in prayer for them. But what I want to offer for us today, it's 10 specific ways we can pray for, these, for this situation as it continues to unfold in Ukraine. We've asked um, community groups this week to really focus your time around these specific prayers and, and to uh, just bring these requests before the Lord. We, we believe as we look at scripture, these are things that are good and right and true uh, for us to pray as believers during moments like this. And so I'm gonna work through each one of these very briefly. And then we're gonna spend uh, several minutes closing together in prayer here pretty soon. So 10 prayers today that we offer for Ukraine. The first is for God to receive ultimate glory and for the name of Jesus to be exalted in the face of evil. That's what we desire above all else. It's the glory of the name of Jesus Christ being exalted among the nations because that's God's desire. Second, we pray for the church to continue speaking the gospel with boldness. That has been their request, is that we would pray for them that they would be bold to continue driving forward the message of the gospel. Third, we pray for the church to faithfully model love of their enemies. You're seeing some of these stories already start to come out, churches that are ministering even to, to enemy troops who have just destroyed their homes, giving them food, letting them call home, ministering the gospel to them. This is a, an incredible opportunity for the light of the gospel to shine in dark situations. Fourth, we pray for the Lord to shield his people as they minister to spiritual and physical needs. That our God who is sovereign, he would be a shield about them. He would be their glory and the lifter of their heads, as the Psalm says. Fifth, we pray for peace. We pray for hostility to cease, for destruction and death to end. But even as we pray for peace, six, we pray for swift, effective justice and long-term accountability. Romans 13 makes it abundantly clear that God has ordained the sword uh, so that it could rise up against those who have committed injustice. And so we pray that the hand of God through uh, those that he rallies around to, to, to protect and to guard and to defend, that it would be swift, it would be effective. Even if it were all to come to an end today, there has been loss of life and destruction of property and there needs to be accountability. And we believe it's good, right, and true to pray for justice to prevail and for the righteous rule of God to be known among people through accountability. Seventh, we pray for the protection of civilians and leaders who are staying. We pray provision for refugees who are fleeing. Eighth, we pray for the hearts of the aggressors to change. Scripture tells us that God controls the hearts of kings like a stream. He directs it wherever he will. And so we ask boldly that he would change the hearts and minds of aggressors. We ask that the Lord would confuse their plans in just the same way at the Red Sea that God clogged the wheels of Pharaoh's chariots. We ask that their equipment would malfunction, that their feet would trip as they run to do evil. We believe that God can do these things. Ninth, we pray for the Lord to shatter the indifference of Western Christians to global spiritual and physical suffering. Listen, I'm not gonna go down this trail today, but hear me out. There is a growing mentality, political mentality in our nation that essentially says, if it's not happening in America, it doesn't pertain to us. 
you must categorically reject this as a follower of Jesus Christ. That is the antithesis of the message of your Bible. We are not part of an American body. We are part of a global body. We are not first and foremost citizens of the United States. We are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You have more in common with your brother or sister in Ukraine today who knows Jesus than your next door neighbor who looks like you, votes like you, and lives like you, but doesn't know Christ. You have more in common globally with those believers. We have to recognize this. We'll see it next week as we continue in our series. When one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. There's global suffering in the body of Christ. There's the image of God being desecrated in man and as followers of Jesus, we grieve these things. It should not be confusing for us. And 10th, most importantly, we pray for God's kingdom to come. We pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the role of the church as the nation's rage is to root our trust. It is to anchor our souls in the unshakable sovereignty of a God who's in control of all things. And because we have that trust, it's to go forward boldly declaring his message, regardless of the circumstances, the Great Commission never changes. So so for now, as we close this morning, what we wanna do, I wanna invite you to join me in interceding for our global brothers and sisters in Christ. And listen, this is a whole other subject uh, that I wish we had time to get into this morning, but let's not forget, like we have brothers and sisters in Christ in Russia too, who are being negative impacted by this. Like this is is complicated in the sense that, man, there are believers in Jesus Christ on both sides of this conflict who are being impacted by these things. And, And globally, we are a body of believers. And so the Lord has entrusted us with freedom and with prosperity, the privilege of of lifting them up and interceding for them today. So I just encourage you just to bow your heads with me. Take these prayer focuses as you go this week, but let's let's go to the Lord interceding for them as we begin to close today. Father, we thank you for the privilege and the undeserved grace we have to gather here today under no real threat. God, most of us, we've got a million other things on our mind. And so I pray, Lord, that for these few moments, we could focus our hearts and our minds and our attention to faithfully intercede for brothers and sisters in Christ today in Ukraine and Russia, globally, who are hurting, who are grieving. Lord, we pray that in the midst of the carnage and chaos of war, that the gospel would shine. God, we pray that you would embolden your church, be a shield and protector to them. I'd fill them with the strength and the power of your Holy Spirit, that they could boldly continue to advance the good news of Jesus. Father, we pray for the hearts of the aggressors to change. Father, confuse their plans, cause their equipment to malfunction, cause weapons to misfire. Lord, prevent the loss of innocent life and destruction and death. God, bring these things to an end. Lord, I pray that your hand of justice would be swift and effective, that your justice and your righteousness and your law would rule and reign in the midst of brokenness. Father, I pray that you would crush our indifference. Any indifference that we have to global suffering, any indifference we have to global lostness, break that this morning, Lord. Make our hearts heavy that we would carry this burden with our global brothers and sisters. Help us to see their need and to be eager to meet those needs. 
God, we, we pray now that as we come to this table this morning, as we join in with, with millions of other believers globally this morning to come to the table to remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God, we pray that we would come rejoicing in his finished work, his victory over sin, death, and hell in the grave so that we could be equipped by his spirit to take your gospel to the ends of the earth. So Lord, help the good news to fall fresh in our hearts again today. Help us to leave this place declaring it regardless of the cost. Keep our brothers and sisters. Keep them and surround them and shield them and protect them as they shine your light in the midst of the darkness today. So if you keep your heads bowed with me for a moment, we're gonna come to the table for the Lord's Supper. As we come this morning, let's come in a posture of confession and repentance. But let's not forget what it cost Jesus to save us. We come to remember what he's done for us. So what words, what actions, what thoughts, what intentions, what motives, what desires, what habits, what is in you that is not of Jesus? Let's be bold in confessing that to him this morning, trusting that if we confess, he's eager to forgive and to heal and to restore, not to push us away. Let's come asking him to give us the confidence that our brothers and sisters in Christ overseas have so that when the day of adversity comes, we're ready because we have anchored the hope of our soul to his sovereign plan and care. So Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that we have in the name of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that you freely offered in his name. Help us to remember it now as we come to the table and to declare your goodness to the ends of the earth. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen.